This afternoon, we're going to be uh, returning to our first Sunday series, uh, continuing through the Psalms. Uh, Today, we're going to be in the 35th Psalm, the 35th Psalm, uh, which is a continuation of, really, a continuation of Psalm 34. Let us hear from God's Word. We read this earlier today, but let's hear it again so it's fresh in our minds. Of David, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like the chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongful let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether, who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord, who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. 
Let us pray. Our Father, blessed be your name. For your name is to be praised from the rising of the sun into its very setting. From before there was a before, you are glorified. And after there's an after, you're glorified. And Father, we, see, we thank you, Lord, for your word. This holy word that we have read. We ask, O oh Father, that you would minister to us by your word to reveal Christ afresh to our minds and our hearts and to reveal what it is to walk in him afresh to our hearts by your word through your spirit. And Father, we ask that you would minister to each of us according to your purposes. Do your surgeon's work in our minds and hearts and our lives. We ask, O oh Father, that you would guide this preacher, that you would chain him to your truth, that he might freely declare truth by your spirit and be clear and accurate and faithful and understandable. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time when we were in the 34th Psalm, we saw the context of that in its immediate context is uh, David was on the run from Saul and he had gone to seek refuge in neighboring country with King Abimelech and David changed his behavior. He acted like a madman. And uh, they eventually drove him out because they didn't want him around. He acted like a madman so they wouldn't kill him. So he did that and we see, saw his deliverance and we saw how that also pointed us to Jesus Christ, who though he did not act as a madman, suffered unjustly on our behalf. And we come to Psalm 35 and this, here, this continues as continues the idea, but in the form of a lament, the form of a cry, the form of a complaint before the Lord, not complaining like Israel complaining in the wilderness and getting judged for it, but expressing this is my need. I have this trouble. Would you come to my aid? The type of complaining that Israel was doing in the wilderness was the Lord brought us here. It was so much better back in Egypt. There's an entirely different idea of complaint there. And it, ha- and it is a continuation of the thought in that David is finding people who are at his throat, who are seeking to destroy him, who are speaking evil words against him and plotting evil devices against him, people to whom David has done nothing but good things. And the best place that that fits in his life would be his time with Saul. So we know if we remember the story, Saul was king. Uh, Saul started off as a great king, did mighty things, and then he got full of himself. And he disobeyed the Lord, and the Lord told him through the prophet Samuel that he was going to remove him from the throne and bring another. And in secret, David was anointed by Samuel to be king. And he made his way to the courtroom of the king through volunteering himself as as the champion in order to defeat Goliath. And there his name was known and he became the king's right hand in military affairs. Now, the king also, King Saul, was also very insecure in his own position because that word had been spoken and he saw David as a threat. So David, who had been done nothing but good for him, was now being persecuted 
by Saul because Saul was afraid of losing his position to David. Matter of fact, when uh, Saul was afflicted with some sort of, it says the Lord sent a spirit to afflict him uh, with with depression or despondency. Uh, David came to his aid by playing the harp and in playing that harp, he comforted him. He mourned with him and helped him through his aid. And how did Saul return the favor? Well, Saul and his allies returned the favor by seeking to destroy David. And this is the context of this particular psalm. It appears most to be a continuation of that. Before, it was one that was a cry of a cry of confidence, saying that he will bless the Lord at all times, saying that there will be praise. And here he now opens up with the lament side of things, the difficulty. As we've learned in this Psalms, the, and when we read the Psalms, we get a very harsh dose of like what I call I like to call realism. How often do we approach life? or our friends, or our brothers and sisters, and people ask how we are doing, and we put our best, best foot forward, we do what, the, uh, what, uh, the, what's, what some peoples are famous for doing in their stereotype of them, of putting on the stiff upper lip and making a smile and saying, things are wonderful. But you may know that there's an internet meme around with a fellow who's smiling. He's got, a, he's got gray hair and he's got a beard and he's smiling, but you can tell that he's in pain while he's smiling. The Psalms are a dose of realism. For we have in this great, we have in the Psalms great joy and victory in the Lord. And then at the same time, we have cries of saying, Oh Lord, how long? Why am I in this? What's the struggle? We must make room for lament. We must make room for the realism of weakness and the realism of pain, which we see in this psalm. Uh, one thing that we uh, need to do is we need to make room for things like Psalm 88. I'd recommend you go read Psalm 88 at some point in time. We see in Psalm 88, the psalmist starts off with, being uh, asked for help and then and then is full of troubles. And many psalms with laments have the sense of, and I will praise you in that day. Psalm 88 ends with this. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. It ends with the lament. We have in this psalm a lament, but at the same time with this lament is interspersed like many psalms that have laments, that have cries and complaints, expectations of deliverance and promises of praise and expectations of praise and thanksgiving, which is the normal posture for lament. The psalm is broken up in roughly into three different sections uh, in which in each section there is a cycle of a complaint, a prayer, and an expectation or promise of praise. Not always in that order. But there's always in there a prayer, a complaint, and an expectation of praise. And so the first cycle in verses 1 through 10, the complaint revolves around the scheming of those who are seeking to destroy him. In verses 11 through 18, the complaint has to do with the unjust, unwarranted treatment that he is receiving at the hands of those who have become his foes. And in verses 19 through 20 is his complaint about their gloating over him. 
This psalm is also, like all psalms, Christological, in that it testifies, like all of Scripture does, of Christ. When we read the Scriptures, the Scriptures define how we should read it. We learn that Jesus says the law and the prophets and the writings, they testify of him. And so we say, how is this relevant to Christ? And some Psalms we have to draw from a lot of scriptures. But in this Psalm, like like in this Psalm, we have an explicit we have an explicit quotation from this Psalm in the New Testament with regards to Jesus suffering. And that's found in verse 19, which we'll talk about in a little bit more. The second half of verse 19 and let those not wink the eye and who hate me without cause. That last line is quoted in John 15 verse 25 as part of Jesus suffering in order to fulfill what is written in the scriptures. They hate me without cause. The only place where those words actually occur are here and in Psalm 69 verse four occur in terms of that phrasing. And so we'll also look at it from that perspective. Our psalmist is asking God to come to his defense as he faces difficulties at the hands of his pursuers. Again, as we mentioned, David has done nothing but good to Saul and for Saul, even treated him as a friend and family. And yet Saul pursued him. We'll see David in his own context. We'll look at this from the standpoint of Christ as the greater David and us against the enemies which scheme against us. Primarily our own flesh, the devil, and the world. The world being the system that has been in place since we ate from that tree in the garden. So in the first complaint, verses 1 through 10, David is concerned about those who are scheming against him. Broken up into roughly four different parts, verses 1 through 3. Uh, three different parts, one through three, four through eight and nine through ten. In the first part, we have the we have the prayer and built into the prayer. We also have the complaint. He says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend against me, fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of the shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. He expresses here that those who are contending against him and that they are fighting against him. And he asks that he asks with regards to each one of the things that they are doing against him, whether it would be contending or fighting against them. He says, do that to them. They are contending against me, contend against them. They are fighting against me, fight against them. They're scheming against me. The idea of contending scheme against them. Scheme, we hear the word scheme, we often hear that in terms of a, uh, as a, a negative thing, saying God's scheming. My first trip to India, I saw there were all these things about different programs that were available, and they were called schemes. And I thought, what? In reality, that's just the British word for plan. When somebody plans, they schemes. And so they're planning against me. So Lord, plan against them. Oh Lord, they are fighting against me. So fight against them. We see that David is under this duress. He is under this pain. And we saw Saul. We can see his inner workings when we read the story of his insecurity and then seeking ways to destroy him as well as sending out people to do that. We can see many occasions for that to happen in there. 
In verses two and three, we have all then we have uh, asking the Lord to take up and go on the offensive. That is, take hold of the of shield and buckler and rise up for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. So here, this idea of take hold of the shield and buckler and rise for my help, that's giving the picture of getting the weaponry and getting ready to go out. That an urgent situation has been called the battle cry, the alarm has been sounded, and the military forces have been called into action, and they're running to the armory to grab everything that they need and to head out into action. And that's what he's asking the Lord to do, is to head into action, to engage and to get the things for battle and to engage in battle against his enemies. For David recognizes in here his own neediness. He cannot take it into his own hands. He sees that they are stronger than him, that he is the weaker party, and that he needs God's help. Which is what David has been, had been doing since the beginning. In the very act of the, the war with Goliath, he said he refused Saul's armor and said the battle belongs to the Lord. You may remember a song, little song from the 80s. In heavenly armor will enter the land. The battle belongs to the Lord. He's asking the Lord to go on the offensive and to fight the battle with his militaristic language, to draw the spear and javelin, not just to get a hold of the weapons, but with the picture of the bow of drawing the spear that's taking the spear and the javelin and getting like this and ready to throw it or with the bow getting it and aiming it and getting ready to 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 cast it out there he's asking the lord to come to his urgent defense but take note of what we have at the second half of verse three which is really the climax of this part say to my soul i am your salvation I am your salvation. What is he asking here? He's not simply saying, go against the enemies. He's saying, come to me and assure me that you are my salvation. He's asking the Lord to assure him of his grace and favor towards him. He's asking to be assured of God's grace, to live in that hope and expectation of God's goodness. Oh, my brothers and sisters, how often we need the assurance of his grace. And he's looking to the Lord who is his salvation and saying, speak that again afresh to my heart. Make that known to me again. How often we need to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ ourselves We sometimes might think of the gospel as a one-time thing. I've heard the gospel. I believed it. Now just give me all the steps I need to follow. When in reality, the Christian life is lived from the perspective of needing this. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Needing to hear what we just testified to, what was just testified to us in the Lord's Supper, that God is our salvation in Christ Jesus. And so David was looking, saying, I need this assurance. I need to know this again. In verses 4 through 8, he then asks, he gives the, uh, continues his prayer and asks, what is it that he specifically wants as a result from this? And they are seeking to shame and dishonor him. They are seeking to disappoint him. 
They are seeking for him to be just like chaff in the wind, to be gone and just blow away and to go away. And he's asking for that to happen to them. Let them be put to shame and dishonor. Let them be turned back and disappointed. Let them be like chaff before the wind. And he, he, and then he also says the reason for that. Why? Because without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Indeed, they sought his shame and dishonor. But he is seeking that it might turn back upon them. That his enemies might find the shame and dishonor. This, in the, this, this request is also what's known as an imprecation. That's simply saying, that that's a word for basically saying, do to them what they've done to me. That's basically what it's asking. It's an imprecation. And in the Psalms, we have language that's most likely that could be well, that very well could have been written in the heat of the moment, under the inspiration of the Spirit, in the heat of the moment in which an awful thing has happened and the writer is writing, they smashed our babies up against the rock. You smashed their babies up against the rock. There's a Psalm that says that. It's asking for God to judge, asking God to do right. It's asking God to make his righteousness known. For indeed, everyone is under the condemnation of God and deserves judgment. And David, in this particular situation of the things that he has accused, he is innocent. And he is seeking that those false accusers might find temporal judgment. But this, as we'll see, testifies something beyond that as well. Again, the reasons for it, without cause. Without cause in this complaint. They hid their net. And he's asking that the trap that they laid for me, may they fall into it. You know the story, maybe sometimes, where somebody lays a, lays a net for, they're out hunting or something, and they lay a trap for an animal to fall into, and they get scared, and they run away, and then they fall into their own trap. And that's something that he's asking to happen here. He's asking the Lord to deal decisively with his enemies, with those who are against him, unjustly pursuing him. And notice the first place that he's going to. He's going first and foremost to the Lord. He's not first and foremost going to whatever the Israeli media looked like in the ancient world. He's going first and foremost to the Lord. So he's asking the Lord to carry this out. To to surprise them with judgment so that they might fall into their own trap. And in verses 9 and 10, we then have the expectation of deliverance. Not just simply an expectation of deliverance, but an expectation that in that deliverance, his soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation, and that the Lord will be praised with everything that he is and everything that he has. He expects joy in the Lord. That is, that he will know in his heart and see with his eyes That indeed it is true, I am your salvation, says the Lord. That he would know it to be true. 
It says, all of his bones will praise the Lord. Saying that his entire being, all that he is, will praise the Lord as a result of his deliverance. What is it that, what are we without our bones? We're just blobs. We would be just masses of tissue that would flop around. Bones hold us up. And so may, may that which holds us up, may that which is um, our support, praise our physical support, praise the Lord, our entire being. And notice what he says here. When asking for deliverance, O Lord, who is like you delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him? How is it that David is regarding himself in this psalm? He is the one who's asking for deliverance. He is regarding himself as something we don't like regarding ourselves as. He's regarding himself as poor and needy, as weak and in need of help. Our default heart, our resting heart rate, spiritually speaking, is to refuse to admit any weakness. To refuse to admit any poverty or any need of anything. But the very act of crying out to the Lord for help is an act of neediness. Is an act of needing. Is an act of, of crying out our own poverty. After all, it is the weak and the vulnerable that the Lord saves. After all, Jesus came not for the healthy which in reality there are none but for the sick. So rather than taking things into his own hand, he turned to the Lord. He turned to the Lord. One of my favorite stage plays, or screen plays, I should say, is one that has a very catchy tune. It's a musical from, I think it was the... 60s or 70s, has a really catchy tune, fun to sing, If I Were a Rich Man. It's called Fiddler on the Roof. The man, he sings, If I Were a Rich Man, and he kind of moves around like this as he's singing. Rather, what we ought to sing is, Oh, if I were a poor man. If I were a poor man. For in my poverty, I would cry to the one who is my strength and my security my hope. We like to think of ourselves as great lions or as wolves, when in reality what we are is sheep. We are sheep in need of a savior, in need of a guide. We need, like David, that assurance of say to my soul, I am your salvation. Again, this testifies of our Lord. Our Lord desired deliverance in accordance with his humanity from the cup which he faced. Did he not cry in the garden? If there is any other way that this could please, if this, if there's any other way, may this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, not my will to be done, but your will be done. In accordance with his humanity, he desired deliverance from his suffering, which he knew was coming. He did not, according to his humanity, he said, this is going to be hard. Be very painful. 
In fact, the most unjust suffering that anyone has ever suffered. And he came to the Lord having everything according to his divinity. Yet he entered into human history. The human nature was united to the divine nature. In the man Jesus Christ, we have this truth from 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He became the poor one on our behalf. The poorest of all poor ones. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And indeed, he, he, he did find deliverance from the cross. He found that in the resurrection. And in his resurrection, his enemies, our sin, our flesh, the devil and his minions, he drew the sword and humiliated him at the cross, testified to by his resurrection. Thus he says to our souls, I am your salvation. Do we need to know that God is our salvation? To where do we look? But the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in that, he has redeemed us. And in his resurrection, we and Jesus, the one who is the surety, found our liberty. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that he put to open shame that which was standing against us. And you who were dead in your trespasses, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He triumphed over the things that were standing against us. And in him we have that. And we too must remember our own poverty, our battle against our flesh and our sin. We too need a champion to fight on our behalf, a greater David to destroy the Goliaths in our life. We may like reading the stories of Old Testament saints like David, the story of David and Goliath, and fashion ourselves to be David in that story and say, I'm going to be David and I'm going to beat Goliath. And we go up against the Goliath in our life. And next thing you know, spiritually speaking, our, we're, we've lost our arms and our legs. Oh, my brothers and sisters, what we need is a champion. We need a greater David to fight on our behalf. Jesus, David is testifying of Jesus in that story. We have more in common with faithless Israel than we do with David. He is our deliverance. We are not sufficient to take on our sin, the flesh and the world by ourselves. We need that. We must reckon ourselves as poor. And we ought to testify of the fact that God is a defender and a defender of us in our weakness, in our poverty, in our vulnerableness. And testify to that truth in our own expression of deediness. 
and as being defenders of weak and vulnerable. We are not sufficient to take on sin by ourselves. We are weak. Verses 11 through 19, we have the second complaint. Verses 11 through 14, we have have again the unjust treatment. And we read this and we see all the awful things that happened to him. Witnesses Witnesses said, why did you do this? He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or testify that Satan, he would say they would come, people may come to him and say, Why did you do this? I have no idea what you're talking about. And yet the accusations come against him. He's done good, and what do they return him? They return him evil, and his soul is bereft. The idea of bereft is that it is downcast, it is downtrodden, it is despairing. When they were sick, think of Saul when he was depressed despondent because of the affliction God had thrown upon him. David comforted him. He played the harp and he comforted him. It says that he wore sackcloth and afflicted himself with fasting. And what did Saul do? He sent out a bulletin, so to speak, destroy David, for he is a threat. And he grieved for him as though he were a brother, bowed in mourning. David even... He sought the good of Saul through, through his life while Saul was alive. Even on his dying day, refused to kill him out of spite. He said, far be it from me. To, and even when he was hiding in the cave and in the opportunity to kill Saul, Saul came and he came into the cave to relieve himself. And, da- and, da- and David was there and he saw it. And did he, he said he had the perfect opportunity to kill Saul. But did he? No. He rather cut a little bit of his garment to prove, he cut a little bit of his garment to go back and say, I could have done that, but I didn't. And yet that was turned to him. And how was it they responded in verses 15 and 16? They responded with, with anger. They responded by rejoicing in his weakness and his difficulty. They gathered up against him. They mocked and conspired against him. They hated him without any good reason. There are those who can only be happy as long as that they are aware that there is someone or a group of someones who are below them on the proverbial pecking order. As long as there's somebody who's below me, I can be happy. And I'm guilty of that in different ways. Example, when, and this is a little silly, but when we play family board games at home, I don't have a goal of winning the game. My goal is to not finish last. And then I'm happy because there's somebody who's below me. And these people are happy as long as there's someone who is below them. It's an old story of a, it's a Russian fable of two farmers who are struggling during a time of difficulty. And one of the farmers is blessed with a cow. And, all of, and he asks the Lord for help and the Lord gives him a cow. 
And now he now with this cow, he has the milk that he needs and the milk is and the cow is producing milk that he can sell and he can get some money. And the neighboring farm farmer goes to the Lord out of anger and says, Lord, why have you done this to me? Why have you blessed him and left me without blessing? The Lord said, would you like a cow? I can give you a cow. He said, no, take his cow away. They rejoiced in his misery. Verses 17 and 18, we see David's prayer. How long? He desires, how long will this go on? We see this lament. How long will you look on? He's saying, you see this. You are aware of this. Will you let this continue? Will you let this unjustness continue? He describes them as the lions, knowing that he is the sheep who needs the help. And there's a promise and expectation of praise. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. And there in verse 18. Verse 19 begins the next section. But here, David, from David's perspective, after this long ordeal, he has only done good for Saul. He sought his benefit, fought well as a commander of men. He comforted Saul in his distress. And again, how did Saul respond? With vengeful awfulness because of his own security regarding his position. This is something that happens. And as Christians, Jesus promised us this would happen. And he says, do not be surprised, but rather look to me and cry out to me. Consider our Lord Jesus, who himself, though all he did was good, he was betrayed. Jesus suffered the most unjust treatment any person in history before or after has suffered. He had no sin and nothing against him, and he was humiliated and placed upon the cross. But that's not a matter to say, okay, we need to get vengeance against those who put him on the cross. But rather, it's remember he did that on our behalf. Our Lord suffered the most unjust treatment to be ever carried out. And just as a little statement on that, it is blasphemous to compare perceived unjust treatment of ourselves or other people, historical or contemporary, to Jesus' suffering and mistreatment. It is blasphemy to do that. Because his suffering and his death was redemptive to bring about salvation of men. And his suffering, he had no reason to suffer. We all have reasons by which we could suffer. Pick any moment of any day and we can point to something that would say we deserve pain and suffering. Any person. But he who knew no sin became sin for us. 1 Peter 2, 22-25 tells us, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." No deceit was found, and he suffered, and he suffered not 
putting up a massive fight, but rather he suffered silently on behalf of us. He was rescued from destruction and the resurrection. And now, just as David in his psalm, he said, I will thank you in the great congregation and the mighty throng. I will praise you. He is now, when we see in the book of Hebrews, he is our brother according to his humanity. And he suffered, and he suffered like us, but also not like us because he didn't deserve to suffer. But he suffered on our behalf. And now he is eternally praising the Father. And he is leading us as the worship leader. He is leading his people in the worship of God. He is the worship leader. We ask and come to a church and we say, who is the worship leader? There's an answer to that. It's not me. It's not the person who happens to be leading the music, whether it's another person. Of course, there's, there's, music is not the definition of worship in a service anyway. It's the whole service. But who is the worship leader? It's Jesus. Jesus is the worship leader of his, of his church. And then we come to the third complaint in verses 19 through 28. And he complains about their gloating. Again, the folks who have no reason to be his enemy have become his enemies. He has done no wrong, and yet they are his enemy. And he's hated without cause. They're openly devising evil and destruction against him, we see in there. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. Again, he's done no wrong. He is not guilty of that which he's being accused. Without Regard. We'll talk about verse 19 in just a moment. But we have the cry for deliverance in verses 22 through 25. You've seen, O Lord, do not be silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Again, you've seen it. So please act, O Lord, on our behalf. He's aware. And he's asked the Lord in several different quick action verbs. He says, awake, rouse yourself, vindicate me which is show me to be right. That's what vindication means. Someone who's been falsely accused and they finally get shown to be right. Maybe you've read a story where there's someone who was treated very poorly and finally, and the person who's been treating them poorly gets away with it, maybe even is hidden and maybe he's a well-respected person. And then finally, at the end of the story, that person who mistreated our hero of the story finally gets what's coming to him and you get that sense of satisfaction and comes out that that person is innocent. That's, called, that's what vindication is. That right has been done. Let them not say we got what we want or we've destroyed him. And again, let them put, be, be put to shame. And then there's also the expectation of deliverance and praise in verses, <clears throat> in verses 25 through 28, 26 through 28, uh, sorry, 27 and 20, in the last verse. I misread my notes there. Let those who delight in my righteousness, verse 27, shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy 
and be glad. Let those for those for those who came to David for his aid, let them rejoice and be glad. Those who rejoiced in David in this particular circumstance, the fact he did no wrong and recognize great is the Lord who delights in the welfare. That is the care that is the good of his servant. Speaking of David as the as the king of his people. And we shall see. All the day long shall praises be sung. That's the result of deliverance is all the day long. God's praises are sung. That's the end game of deliverance and salvation and rescue is that God's name might be praised. That's the end game. That's the purpose is for the praise and glory of God. And again, David suffered unjust treatment and people who should be allies were seeking his destruction. He had no reason for hatred in the matters of which he was being accused as we mentioned, he was loyal to Saul to his dying day. And he's seeking for those who come to, came to his aid to find joy. And so we too, again, should go to the Lord asking for our help in that day. But in verse 19, we turn to the last line of that. Let not those who rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye who hate me without cause. Let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. That last line, who hate me without cause, appears in John eight fifteen verse 25. The context back to verse 18, it says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, because the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all things, all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Referring back to Psalm 35 and also maybe Psalm 69. But Christ was hated without cause and is hated without cause. He has only sought good for his people. And yet he was put upon the cross. And yet people, as, as we read, gnashed their teeth. And yet people sought, mocked him. Think of the soldiers at the cross mocking him. He was hated without cause. Yet, he's, yet he promises us this. Those who delight in his righteousness shall evermore shout for joy. And shall declare, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Those who delight in the righteousness of Christ, who is our righteousness. Who delight in his redemption and his salvation shall find praises unto the Lord. That is our hope, my brothers and sisters. For we, ourselves, in this psalm, there's a sense in which we can place ourselves in David's foot. But there's a sense in which we can also place ourselves in his persecutor's foot. Because we are both oppressed 
and oppressor at the same time because of our sinfulness. We are both oppressor and oppressed at the same time because of our sinfulness. And we need his redemption. We need his righteousness. And so let us delight in that righteousness. So brothers and sisters, because I'm closing words, our Lord was unjustly treated and suffered, yet he endured. Because he endured, we have found redemption. His enemies, as we read in Colossians 2.15 earlier, were humiliated. God answered. He answered David ultimately in Jesus Christ. He answered David ultimately in Jesus Christ. For in Christ our enemies have been destroyed. And because Jesus endured, because he was unjustly treated, so we shall find meaning in our own suffering and our own trials and our own persecutions. In him we have the confidence of deliverance for us and eternal shame for the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our sin does not win the day, nor does our flesh, because Jesus defeated it. Death does not win the day, because Jesus rose from the dead. So, brothers and sisters, knowing what he has done for us, let us praise God in the great congregation. Let us evermore and throughout the day say, Great is the Lord, because Jesus saw Because our father saw and he acted and he delivered through Jesus Christ. He answered David's prayer in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our father, we praise you for your great faithfulness to promise. And we ask, O Lord, that you would keep us afresh looking to your deliverance. For those who do not know Christ, we pray you would draw them to the Savior. Would you help us to walk in that confidence of Christ? We pray these things, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.